We have uh, this morning uh, a couple of guests that are here with us. Uh, I had mentioned uh, last Sunday about uh, God perhaps bringing to us a partnership with a Hispanic uh, church. Uh, and in fact, they will begin tonight. Uh, we'll have worship tonight uh, uh, here at 6 p.m. Uh, and so we'll look forward to ministering with them in a future service where we can have them together. But we have this morning the pastor, uh, Eddie Jimenez, and his son, Angel, uh, here with us. I've asked him to come and share a little bit uh, about their own heart, why they're here, uh, how is it they got here to do what they're doing. And so, Eddie, if you'll come, this is Eddie Jimenez. Eddie is from uh, Venezuela uh, originally, he spent some time in Miami before coming up to uh, North Carolina. And so, uh, Eddie, why don't you share just a little bit with us, brother? Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And uh, I would say thanks God because He uh, opened the door for us to start uh, our ministry service here uh, from today. And I want to share a little bit about my life. I became uh, as a Christian on 1987, April 27. And uh, since I born again, my life was totally uh, transformed. Was one verse in Romans 1.16 was saying, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe. That verse... Uh, transform my life because when I read is the power of God I say I have the solution for all my my problems for the type of life where I was living I got a power from God and I don't want to have that power just with me I want to share to everybody it's a power in Jesus name and since 1987 I start serve the Lord. I put my life to the, uh, God and my pastor. He took my hand and he uh, showed me how be a, a faithful and obedient to the gospel. And next year I will be uh, 30 years serving the Lord as a pastor. Um, my life, how it was on the night before 1987 and up, is totally different. I really, um, I, I, I can't do anything besides serve the Lord with my life. I married with my wife, uh, Janira Jimenez. She's not here with us um, today. And I have um, a daughter, Indira Jimenez, and my son, Angel. And all what I do is serve the Lord. Since I start uh, working or serving the Lord, I say I, it's just one way to be obedient, uh, obedient for Christ. is read the Bible every single day. Since I start doing that, I find a way to to find the right way to live every single day and fight with this word. Another verse what transformed my, my, my life 
was Romans uh, chapter 12 too. And be not conformed to this world, but be yet transformed by the renewing of your mind that yet may, may uh, prove what is that uh, good and acceptable, acceptable and perfect will of God. And that is why I, I put my, my life to serve the Lord. Um, I started serving God in my country. Then I moved to Miami, Florida in 1994. And God called uh, me to move to North Carolina in 19, um, I mean, uh, 2004. And we started a church here in North Carolina now. Uh, it's almost 12 years, and we have around uh, 40, 50 people every uh, Sunday. And God, he's working incredible in the life of our uh, people, our community. Um, almost the whole uh, congregation is um, a couple. It's, it's incredible how God is working on his life. Some of them was really close to get divorced. Now, they're serving the Lord. Some of them was fighting every single day. Now, they're serving the Lord. It's incredible how when we put our life to Jesus, our life changed. And I know what, what uh, religion means because the background of my country is with uh, Catholic. And everybody thinks just because they born in the... Um, the house where they are believing in God or whatever, they can be transformed or they are safe. I know what means religion. And when they become as a Christian, we show him the word of God, and that is how they are living now uh, a free and truly um, a life. And I'm excited how uh, or what God is going to do in this place with us, reaching our community. It's incredible when uh, Pastor Ayer uh, showed to me the great uh, Hispanic population around. And I, I have a, a, a dream. I'm hungry to reach those people and share the gospel and say our uh, salvation in Jesus' name. It's not just for my people, but I'm, I'm excited. I can... Uh, uh, share with other people in our church we have a place for you in English because what we need in, in, in this nation in the all nations around the world is Jesus to transform our life how he did with my life and my family so thank you for this great opportunity what you give to us and we are a little bit loud we're Hispanic so <laughs> we all the time life in and Laughing and, and talking. We're not fighting. We're just talking. <laughs> but thank you so much. And this is uh, his son, Angel, which I have great sympathy and heart for as being a pastor's son myself and having pastored children. And so Angel's grown up here. So why don't you share a little bit as well? Yeah, I grew up here uh, in Miami and then when we moved up here. Uh, but ministry was the farthest thing that I wanted to do uh, in my life as growing up. But as I started to read the word and the Lord um, showed me his love for me and how much he really wanted uh, 
me to be part of his life and the freedom that I found in him, I started to uh, search scripture and I wanted to know the truth of Christ. And through that, he took me to seminary and I found out even more truths of the gospel. And as I found it out for myself, I wanted to show other people the truths of the gospel. And I wanted to say, hey, look at the truth and the beautiful uh, truths and the love that he has for you. Why don't you come and share this with me? Uh, let's share in the love of Christ. And that just um, opened up my heart to learn more and make sure that what I'm teaching and what I'm preaching and what I'm sharing out in the street is truth. Uh, I didn't want to just go out and say, hey, maybe the Bible says this or not. I wanted to make sure that what I was saying was what scripture says and that's what God was saying in his word. So as I um, started in seminary, I was able to be trained and know more about the truth of the gospel that I just can't just read and, hey, maybe it says this. I really wanted to know what it says. First for myself, because I, I was hungry for truth and I couldn't find it out in the world. And then second of all, to share that with other people. So as I um, partnered with my dad as he started here in North Carolina, it was uh, nerve-wracking because I didn't really want to do it. But the more that I did it, not because of him, but just being in ministry and everything that it involves, uh, the Lord gave me love for people and the love for ministry. And I've never been freer than serving him uh, and sharing the truth of the gospel and letting people be free because I was in chains. And once I was free, my life changed completely. So I want to share that with other people as well. Angel will be serving by leading in the worship uh, in the service uh, when it's going to school at South Asian, so he knows Hannah Griffin and John Boozer and some of these others that have, have come through our church as well. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to uh, the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. Um, until we get into our, our next series, I'm kind of doing a, a little mini-series, sort of. Uh, this is what I'm going to call the Coffee Mug Sermons. Um, in other words, there's certain verses you see in Christians' homes that are either on the wall or on the coffee cups. Um, so, last Sunday we did Psalm 23, uh, something very familiar to us, maybe on one of your mugs. Um, today, I want to look at Jeremiah chapter 29, and the one that you will see most frequently is verse 11. I know the plans that I think toward you, thus saith the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, look at that text this morning. Uh, Lord willing, we'll uh, look at Philippians 4.13 uh, next week, uh, and then Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 31. Uh, some of you have that one on your wall. Uh, and so if y'all have something on your wall that's not one of those... Send me an email. I'd love to know that may be uh, part of the sermons in the uh, weeks to come until we get into our next one. Uh, so uh, I want to uh, read to you this passage and uh, what we're learning about in Jeremiah chapter 29 is really how to flourish in any circumstance. How to flourish in any circumstance. Uh, when you read the context which we'll read as a letter, Jeremiah writes, Jeremiah the prophet writes to exiles that have been held captive, taken from Jerusalem, going to Babylon. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. It's not yet destroyed. That will happen in 586 B.C. Uh, so it's somewhere around 597 B.C. where uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes some of the best of society, uh, where folks like Daniel come 
uh, and are taken uh, and given a new name uh, called Belshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know those stories. All these are, are men that were promising young men in Jerusalem that were removed from there, taken. And so Jeremiah remains in Jerusalem and he is sending a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Uh, and so you want to talk about a miserable time. Uh, you think your circumstances are bad. Uh, I don't think we've quite yet uh, met the circumstances that this letter, uh, the recipients are enduring. Uh, I shared with you some time ago, an um, uh, incident that happened maybe two years ago where it was just kind of one of those moments where I was at the bottom of my hope. Um, I'd shared with, uh, it was a Christmas season, I was coming home, and um, you know, Christmas is always so busy, there's 10,000 things going on, and everything asking for your attention, and I'd come home, and you know, when you come home on days like this, have you ever come home, and instead of seeing uh, warm lights, and uh, just feel good, all you see is a list of things to do, Um, well, that was one of those for me, and I've, I realize that's what it means to have a home, is that you're really just getting an ever-growing list that never stops. Welcome, and you pay for that. Um, and so that was kind of one of those moments where I was just coming in and, and tired and worn out, and, and one of our children uh, just kind of fell through the ceiling. Uh, <laughs> and so it was just kind of one of those moments where I just like, I, I, was, I just lost it, you know? Um, I was trying to hold it together, but it wasn't working, um, and so I had, <laughs> you know, the final thing, it wasn't the ceiling, it was actually some closet that has our winter coats in, and never can quite close right, because there's always something stuck in that door, you know, and just little frustrations that, that mount up, and, and as that happened one more time, I was just like slamming the door as hard as I can, and just yelling out, uh, and of which my wife, my loving, patient wife, then responded, if that's the way it is, you just need to leave. And I yelled out, screaming, I'm glad to leave. And I run out. It's probably about 9.30 to 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. at night when all this is going down. And um, I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm mad. I'm just angry. I, I shared this with our preschool leaders uh, a couple weeks ago. I, I and, and the thing is, I knew I was angry, and I knew, like, this is not good. This is, you know, some point along the way, I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness, but I don't want to. And it's not happening. I'm just going to go outside and just be angry. And so, trying to be somewhat constructive, I get my axe and start cutting a old log at 10.30 at night. And um, somewhere along the way, I just get tired. And I lay down up against the log, and I'm just thinking, I don't want to go back in. Because if I go back in, I have to say I'm sorry, and I don't want to do that. So I just say to God, I hate life right now, God. Have you ever done that? you ever felt that way? I just hate life right now. And I just had this kind of question pop up in my heart and mind. You really hate life or do you hate me? (laughs) That's, I'm okay with saying I hate life, but I'm not okay because I'm a pastor with saying I hate God. That just doesn't usually work, you know? 
you can't go like that. But God knew my heart. You can't lie to God. You shouldn't lie to God. It's not very productive. Um, and so at that moment, I just had this confession. God, I think I hate you right now. But as soon as you say that, all this truth that comes with grace comes right into your heart. And I realize I cannot stay this way because you can't remain hateful of the one who sent his son to die for you and given you life and is the very air you breathe. And so with this confession comes this grace. That grace wasn't in my heart. You remember, I was hating the idea of confession. I was hating God. But with this confession, God brings this grace into my mind, my thinking, that softens my heart, because it was very hard, softened it, and said, God, I can't hate you. You love me. I love you. And it's amazing how my heart turned around. Fortunately, by this time, everyone was in bed when I got back in the house, and no one, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to wake them up and say, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I think that was grace, too. Um, but that became the, of course, breakfast conversation. I say that just to let you know there are moments in time. When circumstances are such that hope is the furthest thing from your mind. And it happens to God's people too. Where you just hate life. No, we hate God. Because the circumstances are there. And God is in charge of the circumstances. And we, they're just contrary to what we want. So what do we do there? When the circumstances are adverse, how do we flourish there? And I'm just going to say to you that as we read Hebrews 29, the recipients that are going to get this letter have experienced travails that we do not know. They have experienced a foreign kingdom coming in, wiping them, taking them, separating from their family. Their houses are removed. Their incomes are removed. Their education means nothing now because they have gone hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they have been put there. And they're having to learn all over again how to do life. That degree you got in Jerusalem really doesn't make a difference. Here in Babylon. There's no temple here. There's all kinds of false gods there. There's this Nebuchadnezzar who's a ruthless, mean leader. And the people are known for their barbarian ways. And here they are and they're thinking, when am I going to get out of this circumstance? When are things going to change? Alright, so that being said... Let's read Jeremiah chapter 29. Not of this being God's word, let's stand as we read this together. Let's go to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, 
build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on his behalf, for in his welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me, and come, and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've delivered you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You may be seated. All right, so would that be the letter you would want to get? You're in Babylon, wanting the circumstances to change, and God says, they're not. They're not going to change for another 70 years. So just kind of make the best of it. Go ahead and get married. Build a house. Have children. Plant your garden. Oh, and pray for that city. Pray for Babylon. Yeah, I know the one that just kind of killed your family and took you away from them. Pray for them. And pray that that will have peace Good warfare, because when that city is blessed, you'll be blessed. (laughs) How would you receive that news? You hate life, and God says, well, I made that life for you. Enjoy it. So how do you flourish in the midst of all these circumstances? That's what he tells them to do. He says, build houses, settle down, flourish. In fact, it it says, uh, he says, pray for something. So the first thing I would encourage you to do, what the Word of God is telling us to do, to flourish in in any circumstance, is pray for the circumstances you're in. And in fact, I would say not just pray for the circumstances, he's even more specific, pray for the city. Pray for the people in authority over your circumstances. Pray for their what? Well, you pray for their shalom. Seek the welfare of the city. I've sent you an exile. Pray to the Lord on his, beh- on his behalf, for in his welfare you will find your welfare. That's what the ESV says. Perhaps you might see something that says the word peace. It is the word shalom. Uh, now, the problem with the word shalom is that, and the word peace is it doesn't quite communicate what the word shalom teaches. When we think peace, we think, well, okay, hostilities have ceased. There's much more to this, and, and, and that's why the word flourishing might give a better idea that it speaks to every aspect of a person. Socially, emotionally, physically, economically, may you flourish. 
All right, it says something a little bit different. And when we think of it that way, when we talk about shalom to you, or, or may you pray for this shalom, we're praying for the flourishing of us, but we're praying for the flourishing of the people, the place where you're at. Now, you need to understand something. It's been interesting as we look at the Christian circles in the last 50 years. There are many of us who look at America and we see it as uh, the New Jerusalem. And so we, we have this mindset of, of keeping our Jerusalem. But then there are others of us that also see it, you know, it's not just Jerusalem, it's actually maybe more Babylon. And so the, the difference of that is Jerusalem represents the place of God's promises being fulfilled. Babylon represents the place of man's city, of pride. And so you see these two, Jerusalem and Babylon, used as metaphors throughout the Bible, and so uh, perhaps maybe what we need to understand is that America is not the place where all the promises of God is going to come true, but it could very well be the place of Babylon where man is ruling for pride. But there have been great Christian themes through our, our country that you don't want to forget about. But it makes a lot of sense for us as we live today to understand that we are more like the exiles in Babylon than anything else. That we're here for a little while. And so let's pray for the flourishing of our country. Let's pray for the flourishing of Nightdale, of Raleigh. And so when we want to talk about flourishing, when we talk about in any circumstances, it is to understand that we're going to follow what he's telling us to do. Learn to pray for the welfare of the city where we are in exile. We're going to pray for the flourishing of Raleigh. Play, pray for Nightdale. Have you ever done that? Let's do that together as a church. That we make it a point to be a blessing, to see the blessings of God in our society. So we keep on reading, and you see in verse 8 and 9, he says, Watch out. If you don't listen to certain voices, don't listen to the lies. If you want to learn how to flourish in any circumstance, we're going to have to be discerning with what we listen to. And I'm going to tell you, the biggest influence that you have is yourself. No one talks to yourself more than you. And we are more prone to tell ourselves lies than anyone else. And so what we've got to understand is what God is telling the people here, watch out for the false prophets. Watch out for the ones who are going to lie to you and try to make you think it's something other than what it is. And that is why his letter meant something. Read this letter, know this letter, listen to this letter. And what we've got today is a lot more than just Jeremiah's letter. We've got a collection of things that God is telling us to say, here's truth. And so what I would say to you is, if we're going to flourish in this, this city, and this time, in our circumstances, we've got to learn to go to the Word of God and reject the lying voices that we often tell ourselves. But we'll keep on reading. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. <laughs> 70 years. How, what if you were 20? 70 years from now. Man, there's a good chance you won't be alive when you go back to Jerusalem. I mean, how are you going to make that journey hundreds of miles? They had no cars back then. You're 90. So for all practical purposes, they have said goodbye to their home. What do we do when people have been removed from our lives? 
When circumstances are been taken away from us, families are no longer what they used to be, houses are gone. And for all practical purposes, they're never coming back. And the people that once had a role in your life are now just memories. Here's what you do. You take a long view. You take a long view of life. You see, the thing is about those who follow Jesus Christ, our life is not summed up in the heartbeats that happen here. There is a view for eternity. And we know that, we, we comfort that ourselves when people die. It's like, we'll see them again. We, we say that, but do we believe that? Do you understand that when, when relationships are, are no longer there and homes have been are no longer what they used to be, families have been disintegrated to some degree because of sin or other reasons, that you understand that there is something still I look forward to that for a few years is going to be different. But I'm going to take a long view of what God is doing And so what he's telling him in verse 10 is seven years are going to happen. Take a long view. Hold on. When you want to flourish in whatever the circumstances you are, you're going to have to take a long view of what God is doing and will do. And it may be that you'll see the answers of your prayer fulfilled not in your lifetime. Can you do that? Are you willing to pray for something to happen, for God to work a certain way? Are you willing to pray for that and to understand that it may not happen in your lifetime? Take a long view. We keep on reading. We'll see that, well, in Daniel, it's interesting, Daniel, this is is a contemporary of Daniel. Daniel is one of those exiles. I I don't know if you remember this, but that was not the, the name that was given to him in Babylon. It was like Belshazzar. Which means, Bell is my God. <laughs> Can you imagine that for Daniel? That's why the Bible records him as Daniel. But talking about ways of dealing with this. You see, here's the thing. When you're in a, in a Babylon-like society, there's different ways that society tries to, uh, to bring you under. In Babylon, you could either just make them slaves and subjugate the people. And the thing is that that only forms a bond within the people and they get resentful and hateful and they rise up in tyranny against that. But what Babylon had learned to do is to take the people and assimilate them into the culture. So in effect, they become no more. They become just another variety of Babylonian. Uh, and, And so that's how our society works too, right? There's this assimilation of you become American. All right? And in a lot of ways, there's been some very good things about that. Like, well, there's some virtues in American society that's worth uh, adhering to and bringing in to your system. But what God is warning them and telling them is assimilation is not what we're doing. The other view is somewhat, let's keep a tribe. In other words, we're going we're gonna to maintain our society, but we're going to use the Babylonian culture to help I- increase my tribe. And so there's a little bit of disdain working toward the, the society that they're in. So the, the assimilation is, okay, let me take the, the Babylonian culture and let me leverage it for my own personal gain. I'm going to speak Babylonian. I'm going to look Babylonian because it helps me in the marketplace. And so you forget about being a Jew. The, the tribalism aspect is, you know what, we're going to maintain our Jewish distinctive aspect, but we're going to disdain the culture we live, but we're going to use it. We're going to use Babylonian wealth to help the Jews. All right, so 
One of the things that's fascinating about this is that what he is telling, God is telling them to do, be in the city, live in the city, but use your life to bless the city. See, here's the difference. A lot of us will take America and we'll use it to bless ourselves. Or maybe a distinct group of ourselves. But what he's calling Christians to do, and and this is the Old Testament version of it, is he's asking Christians to come in and bless the country they live, wherever that might be. Don't use necessarily all the resources for your own gain, but use what God has given you to bless the place you go, even if it's a place that holds you captive. Can you get your mind around what God's asking them to do? Uh, And so he's He's just bringing this to them, and in 70 years, I want you to do this, and, and I don't want you to lose your distinctives. In other words, keep having children, uh, keep growing, but use who you are in God to be a blessing to the place where you're at. Now, here's how American society tries to assimilate us. And society at large will say to us, if you believe like we believe, then we will view you as enlightened enough to accept you. So, if you go along with the idea that no one has really exclusive truth. As long as everyone agrees, no one has exclusive truth. If you can agree with that, then we will accept you in our Nightdale Raleigh society. That's what you call assimilation. Where we might say, okay, I, I realize that if I buck that, if I go against that, then I'm going to be labeled as a bigot, and, and therefore I will be ostracized. So it's in my best interest to let's just uh, fudge that a little bit and just say, yeah, I can see how that could happen. That's what we call assimilation. But when we do that, we lose the distinctive, the nourishment that makes us a blessing to a society. So it comes at great loss. Now, what's the point of that? Well, What you have in Jesus Christ and what you have in the Christian truth is that which brings love to everybody, whether you're a Babylonian or Jew. So when we lose this idea that Jesus is God, who says he's the way, the truth, and life, and we lose that, we lose the very foundation and source of our love that allows us to embrace other people and bring them into a different way of life. So this is part of what God is saying is, hey, Seek me in this. Don't assimilate. Be a blessing by holding on to what is true. It's, it's fascinating when you read about how uh, Christians did this in Rome. I, I've shared some of this with you. There's a historian by the name of uh, Rodney Stark uh, that has written this book of just trying to figure out how it is that in the Roman society, Christians grew the way they did. He brings out that there was a period in history where there was a great famine and plague that hit the cities. Uh, So in this book called The Rise of Christianity, he talks about these horrible plagues. In fact, uh, the doctors were incapable of treating the disease. People were afraid to visit anyone. So as a result, thousands of people died for just lack of no one caring for. Because everyone had this fear that came in their life. In fact, uh, there's many uh, houses where that happened. Bodies of the dying were heaped up, one on top of the other, 
And so you could see these sick, half-dead creatures, these people just staggering the streets. So it kind of reminds us of the Black Plague of the medieval times that happened even earlier in the Roman era. So this was so catastrophic that people were becoming indifferent to, to morality itself. And so they would push suffering people away, hoping to avoid any contagion. So if you are living among people who are just trying to assimilate, you remember trying to get societies to benefit yourself, what do you do then? You get out of Dodge. Let's go to Nightdale. Let's go out to Wendell. Let's go to Johnson County, Granville County. Let's keep on going further and further. How do we get away from this? Well, Christians were different. They were showing an amazing love and loyalty. A courageous love. You remember hearing the story about Ben here? He sees a, a man trying to drown his son. Why would you do that, one? But two, have you thought about the courage for a man that's so small, 90 pounds, that says, i got to stop that? Why do you do that? God's moving and changing his heart. And so people were like that in Rome that said, you know what, we're going to do something different. They stayed in the cities. And they cared for these that everyone had pushed away. They started caring for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, and sharing that love, but then they started going beyond that to those who were not in the faith. So many lost their lives. In fact, he writes, they lost their lives in this manner as many elders and ministers did as well. In that day and time, Rome is not very different from America there are many, many religions. Forget that. The Christian faith was born in a society with many religions. And that's going on in Rome. There's all kinds of things and gods that you can worship. But despite all that, something was different here with how the believers loved one another and loved the people in a plague-impacted city. That, those that survived were attracted to Christ because of the Christians that practice a courageous love. And so when we think about this and we see what's going on in Babylon, he's calling us to be a city of believers within a city that is not. To understand that we are a community of faith in the midst of a community that is not of faith. To be a blessing to Nightdale, to be a blessing to Raleigh, uh, that from the strength that God gives to us within us, to share that, to give that to a watching world around us. To flourish in society that may not be flourishing, but to be an agent of change. Now, How do you do that when you don't really like the society? They didn't like Babylon. It would have been natural for them not to like Babylon. Here's the thing. I I love America. I've had family members in the past serve to give their life for our country. But honestly, it gets harder 
when you're really aware that society at large is at odds with the truth that you hold. And that to be a follower of Jesus Christ means not to be a good American citizen anymore. That gets difficult. Here's what we do. We do not love America as it is. We love America as God wants America to be. We love God's dream for America. And that is what we love. What America could be, can be, with God's working in it. That becomes how we relate to this nation that we live in. And so what do we do with that? Well, how do we do that? Well, verse 11 For I know the plans, this is where the verse 11 comes, this is what we have in our coffee mugs. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So as we are in difficult circumstances, we want to see the flourishing take place. How do we see flourishing take place in adverse circumstances? One, we pray for God's working around us. We stop listening to lies and we start seeking out God's truth in this. We take the long view of what God will do uh, in this society. But then, most importantly, we, we borrow hope from God. We borrow hope for what God can do around us. So he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. For your welfare, for your flourishing. Do you believe that God is working in your circumstances? And here's the thing that happened when I was leaning up against a tree, crying, saying I hate life. And God's asking, is that really true or is it you hate me? And I realized I had bought a lie and I started believing or I started hating God. But with that confession, I told you grace came in. Grace came in by telling me, well, doesn't God have a plan? What if his plan involves being a house that's constantly breaking down? What if his plan involves being everywhere you look, you see problems? What if that's part of his plan? What do I know about God's plan? Well, I know Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you. God is aware, each one of you, of your life, and he is working. There's not an accident that happens where he says, oh, whoops, I didn't see that coming. He's very much aware of what's going on. Plans for welfare. Shalom. Flourishing. So here's the question. Do you believe that? Whatever your circumstances in that you hate, despise right now, your limitations that you feel and see, do you believe that God's still working and that he's got a plan in the midst of all that for your flourishing? Not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Listen, if it can encourage Displaced exiles. What do you think it's going to do for us? Exiles here. One of the greatest examples I've seen of this recently was working, serving in Lynch, Kentucky. I, some of you may have read the blog where you know, we went to this coal mining, former coal mining place. U.S. still went out, left it in the 1960s, and it's just a place that everywhere you look, uh, it just, it's like a time capsule of whatever 1960 was. It's still there. 
building infrastructure is going down. Um, and it's just, you know, there used to be 10,000 people in these mining camps, and now it's, you know, 700. Uh, tonight, we'll have the Harvest Conference. You can come out. We're going to have some testimonies and some videos uh, about that time there. Uh, but one of the things that was amazing to me was to see that in this place that everyone seems to forget about, doesn't really care about, God seemed to care. This little mountain town. And how was it evident? It was evident through people who loved God, who were redeemed by Jesus Christ, came there, excelled the need, and said, I want to make a difference here, and just started praying for this place, and then started investing their lives there. What does investing their lives there look like? It looks like I'm going to start a business, and we're going to, we're going to have a coffee shop. And they have this coffee shop there. Made $140,000 there last year. And they use the proceeds of that to go into a nonprofit work serving Jesus Christ into the community. And it's flourishing. When we were there, they just started a gym, opened up a gym, faithfully fit. They're going to use the proceeds of that to go into how can we be a blessing to the community in the name of Jesus Christ. They had this banner as we went in there. This, it used to be a hospital building. It was now our lodge and that of many other churches coming in. Uh, but in this banner or this, was this statement, serving the underserved in the name of Jesus. And despite what every economic force would tell you, there's this growing seed, economic force, a social force that's starting to make a difference. And it was born out of this idea that God wants us here to see flourishing take place because we believe that God is working in us to flourish us. See, at the, at the center of this is the gospel. I want you to pray for Jeff. Jeff and Meredith, they, they're not, um, it was kind of like a, I felt like um, Tombstone. Uh, I, it was kind of this Old West feel to it. You know, the, the sheriff, uh, the police chief, had uh, get caught up in uh, corrupt manners with meth. And um, so there's no police. And they're looking for a, a police captain, looking for a sheriff to come in, you know. And uh, word got out that uh, Jeff ha, has, um, well, he works as a police officer in Cary. And also very much interested in ministry. And so that's exactly the type of person that some of the believers there are praying for. Um, so Jeff and, and Meredith Morgan and their family are going to visit in October, I believe, and just kind of do a scouting trip as a family um, about what God may be directing. They don't know, um, but just kind of see. I'm telling you, if you go, I'm going to call you Morgan Earp. All right? <laughs> that's uh, White Earp's brother uh, that uh, was the, the, the sheriff there, but... Um, this, it's happening. It's a, and so I want you just to think about this. Notice what he's telling them to do. I want you to take your life, make a family, invest in the business, and see it for God's kingdom. Can you do that? I mean, you got to live and work and make your business anyway. Why don't we live and work and make your business for the kingdom's sake? To say, how can my work, how can my business better the kingdom of God right here in Nightdale? What are some things that we can do to bring up the gospel? To serve those who are underserved. And that's why I don't mind whatsoever this uh, Pregnancy Life Center saying, hey, let's get behind that. 
let's, let's help them financially. They are serving people that maybe a lot of people would not serve. Those who are in difficult circumstances and pregnant. Get hopeful about God's plans. What he's doing in your life. Because it could very well be in the midst of dark circumstances that God will use you to shine a light. And you can flourish in that dark circumstance in a way that you could not do in a good circumstance. You're not there by accident. You're not in your school. You're not in your class by just happenstance. You're not in your neighborhood just because it just was convenient. God has a hand in these things. And look around to see where is the dark spots, where is the underserved places around you. How can you pray for God to work and flourish because he's working in your life? So when you hear, I know the plans that I think towards you, saith the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans to flourish you, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yes, that is referring to God's kingdom coming and what we long for, look forward to as we die. But please don't be short-sighted. Have the long view, but also understand that it begins here. It works now. We'll keep on reading. How do you flourish in any circumstance? Not only getting hope from God's plans, but seek the Lord above all things. Notice verse 12. What's the consequence of knowing that God has a plan for you? What does that mean for you? Well, you go, you call. He says, verse 12, then, then when you wear that, when you know that God has a plan for you in the midst of bad circumstances, then you will call upon me. Go or come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So how do you flourish in every circumstance? Well, to seek Christ more than any circumstance. Seek Christ more than any circumstance. Seek Christ in every circumstance. He says, when you're aware that God is working in this, then call upon him. Come. Pray, seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you. Isn't that great? He's saying, you're only as close to me as you want to be. The hindrance is not on my end. God's saying, I will come to you. It's amazing as I read how how Daniel interacts with Jeremiah. In Daniel chapter 9, it talks about him Reading Jeremiah. I love the fact Daniel reads Jeremiah. Daniel reads Jeremiah. Don't we think we could use reading Jeremiah? He's reading Jeremiah and he reads this part. Reads this letter and says, 70 years will come. And Daniel starts doing a little bit of math. He's an old man now. And he realizes, whoa. You know what? If I do my math right, it's been 70 years. So what does he do? Well, you and I, we might be tended to pack up and say, hey, let's, let's go. Let's make it happen. But he does what Jeremiah tells him to do. Daniel 9. 
Verse 2, in the first year of the reign of King Darius, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of Numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. When he realized that God had given a promise, it didn't lead him in presumptuous arrogance, but led him into prayer. And he prayed and he fasted, and he sought God's face. Interesting enough, you see later on that there's this passage where there's some time passes of his prayer, and Gabriel comes to him. You, you see this great prayer, verses 4 through 19 of Daniel chapter 9. And verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, Jerusalem. While speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. You know what it's saying? As soon as you started praying, Daniel, word came out from God Answer the man. Let him get a vision of what God is doing. And Gabriel comes in a supernatural way. Why is it given in such detail of haste and swiftness to assure us that in that moment when we call upon him, he wants us to find him? Do you understand that he wants us to find him more than you want to find him? God has a desire for you than you have even for sin. That's his longing for us. And so in that moment, about 10.30 at night, and I'm a sobbing, angry mess. God designed every bit of it so that when I called and finally called and realized that God was talking, he was quick to answer and let him be found. Are you ready to have an encounter with God? It will happen very likely through circumstances that you would wish not. But he will teach you how to flourish. Because it has nothing to do with the circumstances. It has everything to do with the God who's over them. Are you ready to trust God's plans? Let's pray.